0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday the 21st of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Uh, Joining me via video link, uh, we've got Alex Thompson uh, and also Debbie Evans. So welcome both to the programme. Now we're going to get straight on here with uh, the issue of the newly, well, it's not passed Parliament yet, but certainly it has been announced, the ban on public body boycotts. Um, So what's this all all about? Well, what they're saying is that uh, UK public bodies are going to be banned uh, from imposing their own boycotts or divestment campaigns against foreign countries and territories. Now, Of course, they're not talking about foreign countries and territories, they're talking about Israel here. So let's uh, just bring the legislation itself on screen. This is the Economic Activity of Public Bodies, brackets, Overseas Matters Bill. It was introduced into Parliament on Monday by Michael Gove. More on that in a second. Uh, and what they're saying is uh, that the Uh, Economic Activity of Public Bodies Overseas Matters Bill uh, sends a clear message to councils and other publicly funded institutions that they need to focus on delivering for the public and not spending taxpayers' money pursuing their own foreign policy agenda. Those who break the rules will face significant fines with ministers amongst those able to conduct investigations and suspected breaches." Uh, into suspected breaches, Uh, the bill will stop businesses and organizations, including those affiliated with Israel, from being targeted through ongoing boycotts by public bodies, uh, but also by private companies that are providing a public service. Uh, So here's Michael Gove. This is what he had to say. It's simply wrong that public bodies have been wasting taxpayers' time and money pursuing their own foreign policy agenda. The UK must have a consistent approach to foreign policy set by UK government. Uh, these campaigns not only undermine the UK's foreign policy, but lead to appalling anti-Semitic rhetoric and abuse. That's why we've taken this decisive action to stop these disruptive policies uh, once and for all. So, Alex, uh, maybe I could welcome you to the program here and ask, first of all, is this individual foreign policy, a a separate foreign policy from what the UK is doing, or is this just uh, local authorities and others? wanting to uh, make it clear how they feel about the Palestinian issue?
1: It could very much be the latter, Mike. The term public bodies is very broad in UK law, and it encompasses uh, the uh, organisations set up by government ministries at arm's length as agencies, but also anyone governed by public law, anyone who's thought to be operating under public law. And these bodies are supposed to have legal advisors in-house, and they do who tell them individually what their duties before the law are. Uh, Ultimately, this is His Majesty's government uh, telling these public bodies that since they are creatures of statute, therefore, here's the, the, the false syllogism coming in, therefore they don't have their own conscience or interpretation of the law. Some may find, with arguable validity, that they're obliged uh, not to do business with a certain regime such as Israel, depending on their interpretation of how Israel may be breaching international law. And as you said in the introductory segment there, it will be partly or largely ministers as the uh, legal creators of these the, these bodies, as it were, who, who are responsible for them, who are judge and jury in this. This is pure administrative law. It looks like it won't get near the courts. Uh,
0: well, indeed. And my question then is if they're, they're saying that this they're being very clear about this, that it doesn't apply to private uh, companies or individuals. Uh, but my question then is, if those private companies are doing business with government in some way, are we gonna see some effort to, to nudge them into following the same kind of policy? I suspect, in other words, would they be effectively sanctioned from, uh, from accessing government uh, contracts? Uh, but just to, to finish this off, Alex, Uh, We shouldn't forget that uh, Michael Gove, well, the the Times of Israel here was uh, labelling him uh, a pro-Israel UK Tory leadership candidate. The, well, let's just zoom in on this, the most pro-Israel candidate. Uh, This was, of course, they were talking about this when uh, uh, the replacement for Theresa May was being looked for. Uh, But uh, uh, Alex, Michael Gove has a history of of taking a very strong pro-Israel line. So it's perhaps not surprising that he is uh, leading this.
1: Yes, there is a whole wing of the Conservative Party, uh, not to uh, overlook, for example, the presence of Labour friends of Israel, but there is a particular wing of the Conservative Party, vaguely the right wing, uh, or what they now call National Conservative Wing, uh, which is extremely pro-Israel. There are even rumblings that certain... Uh, prominent Conservatives, Preeti Patel has been mentioned, who's been uh, spotted doing some unannounced touring of the West Bank, um, uh, could break off, potentially even with Nigel Farage, former leader of UKIP, though I doubt that, uh, and form a new party such as the level of disgruntlement. It seems to be a totally visceral issue for half of the Conservative Party that's loyalty to Israel goes first. And if Brian were with us today, I think he would remind us um, of a David Cameron quotation to that effect.
0: Uh, Indeed. Um, Okay, let's move on. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, And uh, inflation next. Uh, Sorry, let's bring the main inflation graph on screen here. So uh, CPI is at 8.7%. Uh, so it seems to be uh, changing course from the last couple of months, which was downward downward trend. So that does not seem to be uh, following. Um, so uh, what's the main driver? Well, apparently it's air travel, recreation and uh, con- uh, cultural goods and services, uh, secondhand cars. These are the types of things that have uh, stalled the fall in inflation. The Bank of England uh, unlike, uh, is unlikely to be terribly happy about this because it makes a mockery of their... Uh, their uh, forecasts, uh, but let's have a look at this. Uh, this is uh, food and alcoholic beverages, uh, because although food uh, has not been a key driver uh, in the reversal of fortunes this month, uh, it's certainly, the situation is not improving very rapidly uh, with that, so 60, I think something around uh, 16% uh, on, uh, as an average CPI. Uh, and food and non-alcoholic beverages, 18.4% uh, on this particular uh, chart from the uh, from the ONS. But the core inflation figures, this is the one that's really uh, driving uh, the underlying trends in inflation. Uh, and these figures are not going in the right direction. So if we look at uh, core CPI, which is this is including energy, food, alcohol and tobacco, and gives a, a fairly good idea of where the, or at least the pressures on inflation, And we can see that, uh, in fact, it has been rising uh, for the last three months. So uh, March, it was 6.2%. April, 6.8%. May is now 7.1%. So uh, the fall in inflation that the Bank of England was predicting uh, does not seem to be materializing. Uh, And in fact, uh, we would argue that uh, that was pretty clear or pretty obvious that that was going to happen. So let's bring uh, Jeremy Hunt on screen uh, because this is what he had to say. Uh, a couple of months ago about this. Uh, We have a plan and we're going to reduce uh, that pressure. And if we're going to reduce that pressure on families, it's absolutely essential that we stick to that plan and we see it through so that we have inflation this year, as the prime minister has promised. Uh, Well, okay, that's the uh, UK government's position, but uh, he was talking about food inflation, mainly energy prices. We're seeing energy prices coming down, uh, particularly at the, the petrol pumps and so on. We're starting to see energy prices in terms of gas and electricity come down as well. Uh, But that pressure that people faced over the winter is now of course being replaced with mortgages uh, and uh, the pressure on house prices starting to tell as well. So uh, we're seeing that the rate of change of house prices is falling uh, and that isn't gonna change anytime soon. But the rising inflation is gonna have the inevitable effect tomorrow uh, of the Bank of England putting interest rates up, some people suggesting by another half percent, uh, and people already starting to come under severe pressure uh, as they beginning as they begin to uh, require to uh, remortgage in the next couple of months. Now, I think the uh, current figures that something like four hundred thousand uh, new mortgage deals are going to have to be done in the in the next few months, and of course, people are finding that they in some cases uh, mortgage repayments are doubling. So the pressure that people felt over the winter with energy prices now being replaced with housing costs. uh, This is what Jeremy Hunt had to say this morning uh, about the uh, potential support uh, on housing.
2: Thank you Mr Speaker. We won't hesitate in our resolve to support the Bank of England as it seeks to strangle inflation in the economy and the best policy is to stick to our plan to halve it. But I also want to make sure we do everything possible to help families paying higher mortgage rates in ways that do not themselves feed inflation. So later this week, I'll be meeting the principal mortgage lenders to ask what help they can give to people struggling to pay for more expensive mortgages and what flexibilities might be possible for families in arrears.
0: So, Alex, uh, I mean, clearly mortgage companies are not going to be able to do anything to help. They they have to they're always going to charge uh, a couple of percent above. Uh, the Bank of England base rate. Um, so clearly he's looking for some kind of deal to be done, maybe about uh, reorganizing mortgages. Maybe we're going to start to see 50, 100 year mortgages coming in, uh, in an effort to keep people in their homes. Uh, that I don't really see any alternative.
1: It's looking that way, isn't it, Mike? And perhaps our overseas viewers might not be aware just how mainstream it has become, even for high earners in the British economy, certainly in London, to be offered ridiculously long mortgages. Uh, Anyone who knows anyone who's working in the City of London, the financial district, will know that they live in two or three zones out uh, in public transport terms now these days because even they can't afford the centre and the mortgage is there. Uh often the bankers uh, who uh, sell them will say, well, you'll be working till you're 70 or 72, won't you? Yeah, let's just, just sign here for a 35-year mortgage. Um, this is unthinkable even to near nearby countries like Germany, for example, but it is routine. And we, we see here the specter of a multi-generational debt being raised. Now, at English law, that's supposed to be impossible. Uh, there are countries like Belgium where debt is inherited by the heirs. Uh, is this a de facto way of moving to that situation?
0: Uh, Well, in fact, uh, somebody in the chat box has just mentioned that uh, Rishi Sunak was talking about extended mortgages today. We'll we'll see where that goes and keep everybody posted. But the question, uh, I guess, on my uh, mind is who's to blame? Um, So let's consider this because of course, uh, British government wants to tell us it's the Russians. Uh, It's the Russians are to blame because they invaded uh, Ukraine and therefore uh, that pushed up energy prices and that sparked off inflation. Well, I'm going to draw a line through that because that's absolute nonsense. Inflation was baked in from well before the uh, Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, So let's look at the other option that the government wants to divert us onto, the Chinese, uh, because, of course, COVID was a lab leak uh, and that was uh, the Chinese that did that. uh, And therefore, uh, everything that's happened since was all to do with the Chinese. But of course, the Chinese didn't set our economic policy during the so-called COVID pandemic. Uh, and so we're not going to blame the Chinese either. I don't think, uh, Alex. There's only two organisations uh, that we can blame for this, in my opinion, uh, the Bank of England and the UK government, because uh, their uh, monetary policy and most importantly their economic policy, uh, as a result of COVID and the month, the the uh, at least the uh, under the guise of COVID and their uh, money printing that went on over the particularly over those two years. Uh, those are the key drivers of what we're seeing at the moment.
1: They are. And before 1997, we wouldn't have been able to say there were two culprits. They were but one until the Blair Brown administration announced the operational independence of the Bank of England for setting these rates. Uh, and I would recommend that those who haven't or even those who haven't, we would like a refresher, uh, should go to ukcolumn.org and find Ian Davis's article, The Private Bank of England Corporation. They may be in for a shock as to who's responsible for what.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Now, Alex, let's move on to uh, France then, and, uh, well, uh, surveillance.
1: Yes. In the first week of June, the French Senate was given and uh, voted to approve a draft uh, bill uh, by the Justice Minister. Uh, to allow surveillance using electronic devices, both computer or personal computing and mobile devices. Um, it's very controversial, and RTL here, a mainstream uh, broadcaster, is pointing that out in its subheader. It's a controversial draft. Uh, the text uh, allows for phones and computers, anything connected uh, to the Internet, to be activated Uh, remotely by the authorities and this has actually been proposed by a justice minister who when he was a private lawyer was noted for getting a large number of defendants off the hook and was supposedly uh, pro uh, acquittal but uh, he's changed his tune now. And RTL goes on to give us the detail uh, that one of the things that this draft will allow, if it's signed into law finally, uh, will be real-time geolocalisation or uh, tracking for certain infractions. Uh, French terms for for breaking the law are quite specific, uh, but infractions is just one kind. On the other hand, uh, it will allow for microphones and cameras Uh, to be set on. So sound and image can be captured. uh, And this will be, uh, we're told this in order to reassure people in France, of course, that that nothing really horrible is happening. This will be reserved for organized crime that tends to be, you know, rule of thumb, million euros or more. Terrorism, people might say fair enough. And then the other one is what they call in French uh, which is an extremely broad brush term. It covers what in common law terms would be called um, not only uh, felonies, serious criminal uh, offences, but also misdemeanors and infractions. Uh, so that, that is not actually a reassurance at all. And uh, the RTL commentary has already said that this is going to lead to a, a society of mouchard, a, a society of snitches. Uh, but maybe even the snitches aren't needed at this point because your phone will spy on you. This is something that many Western democracies and five-eyes countries in the surveillance grid, GCHQ NSA, have long said, oh no, we will never go this way. But the French now are. And as usual, they're saying it's because we have a problem with terrorism. But of course, wrong speak will eventually fall into the same net.
0: Well, well that's the key point, isn't it, Alex? Because I mean, what is the definition of terrorism these days?
1: That is, of course, undefined. And this is this primary legislation. This uh, organic law is going to say terrorism is a problem. Then, as we'll be seeing later with reference to the UK, a ministerial schedule or some other kind of secondary legislation will say, henceforth, saying that you don't like immigrants is terrorism. And, uh, you know, we saw that already in the blather uh, the, the from the British government in the opening segment where uh, the, we can't have boycotts because it leads to rhetoric. You know, yes. complete nonsense there. And yes, I have one more slide which doesn't quite follow so easily from that, but it is uh, regarding uh, climate panic, which is the other kind of panic. This has been captured last week. Uh, On Danish mainstream television, the weather forecast as of 4.30pm on a a warm June day, um, Friday last week. But of course, Denmark being Scandinavian isn't exactly tropical. So uh, the highest temperatures they managed there was 18 degrees Celsius uh, in Esbjerg on the West Coast. But look, nowadays, uh, Danish weathercasters colour the whole country light, uh, light red or even angry dark red to suggest that everyone's going to die of heat stroke at 11 to 18 degrees.
0: Yeah. OK, brilliant. Thanks. Now, let's come up back on the surveillance and welcome, Debbie, to the programme. Uh, let's start off with uh, Viscount Camrose.
3: Yeah, good afternoon. I'd like to introduce you to Viscount Camrose. I don't suppose many people have heard of him, but he is actually the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State Minister for AI and Intellectual Property. So I decided to look at a little bit deeper. And, and there's very little information. But he seems to have been accelerated very quickly into the House of Lords, where he was made appear in 2022. Then he was, in the, uh, AI, he was a member of the AI Weapons Committee for only three months. So when I started to look a little bit deeper, I wanted to know what he was doing now. And I discovered the United Kingdom is something called the United Kingdom's geospatial strategy. 2030 sets out the government's strategy to drive greater use of innovative location data and technologies across the economy. So what does this actually mean? And when you actually go into the document, you'll see what it means. It means sensors, and I've just copied and pasted a little bit of the document. It's a big document. I really would advise everybody go and have a look at it because it's talking about how they can monitor your movements, where you're going, when you're going, how far away from a normal location you'll be. And when I went to look in, in into the document a little bit more in detail, and I do apologise for the next slide because I double um, I, I double copied, um, sorry, I repeated a copy and paste. So I just want to very quickly highlight nine points that's in this document. Public health that means they're going to watch you in gyms and parks. Ocean economy means they're going to be watching shipping and fishing with ambient sensors. Remember, retail means they're gonna be watching you in restaurants and coffee shops. Environment means farming and farmers. Infrastructure means they're going to use drones to look around buildings to see if there are any faults in them to make sure you're safe. Transport means they're gonna be watching commuters. Emergency response means that they can respond quickly to crime, health and response to emergencies. And then you've got housing and they say housing distribution of housing needs. I'm not quite sure what that means. And finance, this is where it gets interesting. If you use your bank card in a different location to the one that you would normally use it, why? They'll be able to tell. So how free are we in the UK? Because it seems we're going to be surrounded by censors. I didn't know that something called the Freedom Index actually does exist. So what is the Freedom Index? Well, it was co-published by the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and sorry, Alex, for the pronunciation, Liberal Institute Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And you can see there that, that if you're in dark blue, the blue the, the, the darker the color, the freer you are. <laughs> so when I went to look at freedom indexes a little bit more in detail, I also found that there was a, a mapping of economic freedom. So how how economically free are we? Well according to this map, which is um, has been produced in a co- collaboration with the Heritage um, Trust, the Heritage Foundation, sorry, according to this Canada, I'm sure everybody in Canada that's watching may disagree. But according to this, Canada is the freest of the Americas. And Ireland, uh, you seem to be doing very well for freedom as well. So when we go and look at it globally, on a global uh, basis, we can see that Singapore actually dominates that at number one. And there you can see Ireland at number three. And I just honed in on Europe because I thought um, most people probably watching in the UK, especially today, would be interested in Europe. So there's a screenshot for you if you want to tweet that about, because that's how free we are. And you can see Switzerland there as well. Very free. So I didn't know these economic and, and this mapping was taking place. So I wanted to see more. And I went to look at another one, which is about human impact. So, what is the human impact? Well, what, what do we, why are we responsible? And you can see there from the dark purple and the black, it's less impact. So, I zoomed in on Europe because it looks quite bright in Europe. And there you can see the impact. If it's in yellow and orange, it's a high impact. So, you can see that Europe is contributing quite a bit to human impact. But, how does that figure? with companies, because these companies you know, that, that we're all so familiar with. And of course, I went to look at that too. And I was really alarmed to find that you've got Moderna at number six, 11 is Pfizer, and 12 is Johnson & Johnson, who have just appeared from nowhere. And of course, you've got all the usual corporates, Microsoft and Apple too. So these are the most innovative companies in 2023. So my big question is, How free are we in the UK? Because all is is not as it seems, and we are certainly not free. We're being locked in, I believe, and we're being watched. Uh,
0: Yes, Alex, uh, when we look at uh, those uh, graphs that Debbie's just shown, the graphics that Debbie's just shown, we can see uh, the most free countries are the ones that are also being labeled as having the most economic impact on the planet. Uh, And therefore, of course, the leveling up of the world that we're seeing at the moment, which is effectively a great reset in action, uh, requires this whole of economy transition, as Mark Carney describes it. Um, And of course, the the impact that we're having on the world needs to be massively reduced as we head towards net zero. So it can't be a coincidence uh, that uh, the countries that are labeled as the most free are the ones that are having the greatest economic impact and probably the ones that are in terms of the trajectory that they're going to, uh, they're heading towards becoming less free on a daily basis.
1: Yes, these countries, Singapore, Switzerland, Ireland uh, have got greatest freedom of contract and uh, historically the least tolerance of oligopolies. that's you know the, the, the stitching up of the market by a few people, and that I think is what's being attacked by the oligarchs who, who increasingly nakedly bear rule over us. They do not want. Uh, such countries to exist, and it's, it tends to be the smaller jurisdictions, city states, island states, or you know, uh, mountain cantonal states like Switzerland who who, do, who go this way. Then the big boys like Germany, who is lagging behind in this economic freedom index, come along and say, "Oi, we want to crush that." And of course, not coincidentally, it's a German that runs the World Economic Forum. That model is being pushed.
0: Yes. So speaking of freedom, of course, uh, the Public Order Act uh, is, restricts our freedom to protest, uh, but. Uh by how much?
1: By a great deal, because even minor disruption is now in scope. Uh, it's the constitutional aspect of this which is really coming to the fore, because uh, viewers will know that we've been covering the evils uh, of public order uh, legislation, a whole raft of it in Britain for a while. Now, the key word on screen at the moment from Hansard, the record of parliamentary transactions, in this case the House of Lords, last week on the 13th of June, is the word regulations. Uh, Because regulations, secondary legislation, that is, is stuff written by government ministries and just waved in front of the nose uh, of parliament, uh, laid in front of only the lower chamber, the House of Parliament. At house of Commons, uh, and if they fail to object, uh, as you've covered many times before, Mike, that becomes law, but it was never voted on by Parliament or debate, debated by Parliament. The upper house, the House of Lords, has got more ju- uh, more scope, uh, but we don't have time to get into the, the nitty-gritty of it, but let's uh, see what the outrage is and the un- the unexpected person in the House of Lords who did a sterling job of drawing attention to it, alas, unsuccessfully. Uh, so the legislation was introduced that evening by Lord Sharp of Epsom, who is the Under-Secretary of State for the Home Office. Uh, and the relevant part of his remarks to the Lords uh, House of Lords uh, was that these regulations built further clarity by uh, adding a non-exhaustive list, so police have further discretion beyond this, of examples of serious disruption to the life of the community, a very strange, almost pseudo-religious phrase that we never had in English law before, the life of the community. And so the regulations explicitly say that police or councils can intervene to prevent a hindrance that is more than minor to the carrying out of day-to-day activities, such as making a journey. This is, of course, these staged sit-ins. Read Simon Elmer's piece, The uh, Politics of Environmental Fundamentalism on our our websites to find out what's being done here but under cover of this just stop oil and extension rebellion sort of pet protesters uh, issue uh, the the fake remedy has come in the reaction to the to the problem has come in um, we go through on Hansard and we find that it was Baroness Jenny Jones, uh, a member of the Green Party uh, who heroically, uh, coordinated, alas, an unsuccessful campaign. I won't read it all out, but she said that this was a make, make or break moment for democracy. Um, her uh, ally uh, who who backed her that evening, Lord Coker, Bernard Coker, said that conventions were now being broken. The government was uh, not respecting them. Uh, Jenny Jones was quite right to say that we don't have a codified constitution. She did not say we have a we have an unwritten constitution. I think she's been uh, mugging up quite well on the constitution. Actually, uh, by convention, she reminded the House of Lords that they, as they, they've been browbeaten to think of themselves for a century now as the unelected upper chamber. But it's only by convention, as Lady Jones quite rightly said, that they would not block primary legislation. And this is stas- secondary. So she spotted for the first time that there was an opportunity for the Lords to stop this. Uh, at root, of course, what's gone on here is that it was in a draft of primary legislation that police could stop a minor, annoyant protest. Uh, and the Parliament said no. Then the government, the ministry responsible, the Home Office, simply wrote it into regulations, uh, s- submitted that to Parliament and said, well, how about that then? Uh, so that's that's where it's gone. We'll have to speed through the rest of this. But Jenny Jones said that it's a turning point for parliamentary democracy. This hands debate link will be in the show notes and have a look for the phrase constitutional outrage. You'll see that three lords, if I counted correctly, used that very phrase. Uh, not just Lady Jones. Uh, she gave a concrete example of people being told uh, that uh, the police will turn up to you and say your protest is banned because I v- believe it will cause more than minor disruption, a very low bar. Uh, she went on to say, of course, this is too, too much to read now, uh, but if we don't stop this assault on democracy now, it will become more than a one-off and there'll be no opportunity really to stop it. Uh, so this is Uh, Quite a shock, I think, uh, to, to, to Lady Jones that things have got this far. The vote, unfortunately, was 154 against her amendment to remove that phrase and 68 in support. She had tried to get all the independent lords Uh, the non-party whipped ones to stand with her, rather shows that the point of the House of Lords uh, to be non-political and non-elected is quite uh, quite right. Uh, Green World in covering this uh, covered Lady Jones's uh, uh, point quite well, and if you freeze the screen now, you will see that the Parliament Acts, which really cabbaged the House of Lords' his role, never envisaged the growth of secondary legislation, which is why Lady Jones was able to use this loophole uh, to call on the Lords to do their constitutional duty. But alas, one after the other, the Lords that evening in the debate said, oh, I'm not going to, to, to trouble convention now. We're, we're not elected. We have to know our place. Uh, pretty rotten state of affairs there.
0: Um, and then there's one final one there. Alex uh, Suella breverman uh, actually being taken to court over the uh, ability to protest.
1: This is the unexpected denouement, actually, that the Home Secretary, so the Interior Ministry to Foreign Viewers, has now had the uh, what used to be called the National Council for Civil Liberties, now just called Liberty, write to her and saying, our interpretation is that you have broken the law uh, because Parliament rejected this um, uh, power for police to say, this is more than minor disruption, away with you or we'll arrest you, uh, and you've rammed it through using secondary legislation. You've uh, ignored and insulted the will of Parliament. Uh, there's the uh, key bit on, uh, on screen at the moment uh, that Braverman uh, said, of course, this was to do with uh, people being fed up with just stop oil without using them by name. But Liberty is now trying to start a judicial review, take the matter to a, a judge. Uh, and Liberty said that this violates the constitutional separation of powers because the measures had already been rejected by Parliament. So there are a few people, and I wouldn't have expected a Green Baroness and Liberty be them, but there are a few people who know that we have a written, though not codified constitution, and it does have separation of powers.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Your membership very much needed, and you're welcome uh, to join us in the forums and so on, and for extra uh, after the main news program. Um, You could also pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, especially on UKColumn.org and UKColumnExtracts.co.uk. Uh, Debbie, very, very briefly, your latest blog, blog is now up.
3: It is mRNA in animals, uh, Pfizer announcing antibiotic shortages, Chocolate flation, would you believe? And if you've got any gender critical views, you're not welcome in Wix, that uh, and in- more.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you. And uh, tomorrow, 1 p.m., we're streaming out uh, an interview that uh, Debbie did a few days ago with uh, Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, And the question is Did Pfizer know? uh, A stark uh, but honest warning from Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, And uh, because we are going to be in Scotland on Friday, uh, there'll be no UK column news on Friday. So instead, uh, you will get uh, an interview that uh, David Scott is holding uh, with Ben Rubin. uh, And the title is The Rise of Big Data. In healthcare, um, so a, f- a reminder that on Friday uh, we will be at the rally for peace and freedom uh, outside Holyrood, uh, next to, to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, that's actually at two pm on Saturday. Uh, sorry, on Saturday that is. Uh, so that Brian will be speaking at that. Uh, David Scott will be speaking at that. Uh, a whole bunch of other people: David Clues, Peter Ford, Lauren Wilson, Colin Buchanan, Alex Pierce. So that's Saturday, twenty uh, fourth at two pm. Uh, and uh, so hopefully everybody. Uh, that's in that neck of the woods will be able to come and join us there. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, the Ukraine Recovery Conference was happening today. Uh, and, uh, well, you can see the scene there. We have uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, nice and small in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, uh, and uh, the huge uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who, of course, was uh, doing holding out the begging bowl once again today. Uh, now we have a couple of uh, little bits of video. Let's just listen uh, to a few seconds of Rishi.
2: It's clear Russia must pay for the destruction that they've inflicted. So we're working with allies to explore lawful routes to use Russian assets. And on Monday, we publish new legislation to allow us to keep sanctions in place until Russia pays up. But beyond that, we must bring to bear a partnership of governments international financial institutions and business leaders, all of us here today to make this happen. The British government will continue to play its full part. And I'm proud that today we're announcing a multi-year commitment to support Ukraine's economy. Over three years, we will provide loan guarantees worth $3 billion.
0: So, Alex, a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, the money that's going is going to be in the form of more loan guarantees, so it's more borrowed money. Uh, but this is, seems to be an attempt to bring the private sector into the funding uh, campaign that the governments that governments have been running. So this isn't just about bringing governments together, it's also bringing in what they describe as major conglomerates and international corporations. Uh, and the, the, the names that they named in their press release today included uh, uh, Virgin, Sanofi, Philips, Hyundai Engineering, uh, Citibank. Uh, those are the, the, the key names that were singled out as taking part in this today. Um, so, loan guarantees and, well, more fusion between government and corporate entities, it seems.
1: Yes, this is corporatism at its finest, isn't it? Uh, such corporations, mega corporations as you have, na- have named, would dearly love to have the ability to sign treaties directly with governments. But sadly for them, they can't. But if they have a tame government or two in their pocket, uh, they can institute a public-private partnership, a global public-private partnership, one might suggest in in Ian Davis's terminology, uh, to work hand in glove with them. So uh, there's no money involved. It's paper. It's loan guarantees, as you say. And uh, all the action is by the corporations. They're behaving as if they could tell Ukrainian governments and Western governments what to do, perhaps because they can in the current arrangements.
0: Yes. Well, it didn't end there end there because uh, we've got to bring the City of London in. So uh, let's listen to a second little clip here.
2: And I am delighted to announce today that over 400 businesses from 38 countries with a combined market cap of $4.9 trillion have now signed up. Now, the City of London has a huge amount to offer in their deep and liquid capital markets and world-class finance expertise. So there is no better place to announce today the new London Conference Framework for War Risk Insurance. This is a huge step forward towards helping insurers to underwrite investments into Ukraine, removing one of the biggest barriers and giving investors the confidence they need to act. With this and everything that we do here, we are sending a message that our support on the battlefield and beyond cannot be outlasted and that Ukraine's incredible spirit will prevail. Now, in a moment, I'll hand over to my friend, President Zelensky. But first, I'd just like to share something that I heard recently.
0: Now, I left it there because I wasn't going to uh, inflict his little story on everybody, uh, but he went on to tell a nice little story. So it's, it's on the number 10 uh, Twitter feed if you want to watch the whole uh, speech from Rishi. I'm quite sure nobody does uh, and you'll get the little story. But anyway, uh, Alex, I saw you with your head in your hands there. I wasn't quite sure whether that was sheer dismay or or what.
1: It was mind-boggling at the contradiction in terms of insuring for war risk, Mike. Uh, If you insure your home, your home contents, your vehicle, uh, of course, in some countries you have to for certain purposes, it's for fire theft, and third party. That is, unless you fix it yourself, for which there are stiff legal penalties, these are things that other people will do to you over which you have no control. Companies signing contracts of the kind I've translated for many years uh, will talk about force majeure, natural disasters, and acts of God. Again, out of your hands. A war is not an act of God, even in a theological sense. Humans start wars, if you're touting for Ukraine to sign up on the dotted line for City of London war risk insurance, then massive temptation is there for the war to be engineered, prolonged, and protracted, so that a generation of Ukrainians pays its annual subscription to the war risk.
0: I can't. I couldn't have put it better. I mean that that's absolutely the case. Now uh, let's let's move on then, because uh, during the the conference then uh, Zelensky was speaking to the BBC, and he had this to say. Uh, battlefield progress during the counteroffensive has been slower than desired. Um, Well, yes, it has been. And in fact, I just want to end this little segment by uh, putting up this uh, graphic from uh, Il Russo. Uh, And uh, well, this shows the progress that the Ukrainians have made because you see this large uh, pink area on screen, that's uh, the Russian held territory. And uh, just on the top edge of that, you'll see a couple of little uh, very, very small, uh, lighter pink areas, and those are the areas where it looks like the Ukrainians made some progress, but have had to withdraw. They're not really there anymore. Uh, but but the the land is is now effectively a, a bit of a demilitarized zone. But Alex, these areas are so minuscule by comparison with with the territory held by uh, Russia, uh, as that it it comes to no progress at all. In fact.
1: Yes, because as Brian was pointing out last time, similar maps were shown. These gains are within the fire zone, the dead zone. You, know, you, can, you can boast that you've taken a village or two and put a nice box around it. Uh, but if there's back defenses by the Russians, you're still a sitting duck, alas. So there's going to be waves of these Ukrainian troops very tragically mown down as this offensive continues, I foresee.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, look, go back to France, in fact, and look at what they're up to with respect to Russia.
1: Many viewers might recall that Nicolas Sarkozy as president had François Fillon as his head of government, his prime minister. Some will know that Fillon then went off and did the same as Gerhard Schröder when he resigned from the chancellorship of Germany. Namely, he went into private business and got very envious and uh, angry uh, comebacks from the political class for doing business with Russian hydrocarbon companies. Uh, On the 2nd of May, uh, Mr. Fillon was called to uh, be interviewed by the parliamentary inquiry into foreign interference in French democracy. Uh, BFM, which is quite a pro National Front party, and therefore covered this extensively, because the uh, Rassemblee Nationale, (National Front) is the old name, uh, set this committee up to, arguably, to deflect from from uh, accusations that they're pro-Russian. Fillon told them that he wasn't bothered by Russian interference, and uh, one of the key quotations is brought up here by BFM and Radio Monte Carlo reporting. On He says, uh, if you ask me about foreign interference, oh, yes, I've come across it. Most of it came from a friendly country that we call the United States. Uh, President Sarkozy and I as head of government were eavesdropped on for five years by the U.S. NSA. He said there was other espionage of note and concern, Chinese and from several Muslim countries whipping up sentiment among French Muslims uh, in foreign policy terms. Uh, but then he went on to talk about several other things. Uh, the NSA issue is not so new because the Germans have made a big noise about it, but he pointed out it applied equally to France. He was more concerned strategically about what America does to Europe. And in the first of two clips, which is Fion speaking French with an English fairly good auto Subtitle going on underneath. Uh, he's talking about the uh, uh, disparity there between uh, what's claimed uh, with regard to Russia and America. Particularly talking out that back to de Gaulle's time, France was faced with this problem, this reality really, that it shares a landmass with Russia and has to find a modus vivendi with it, whereas America is very far away.
4: Notamment sur cette question de, du rapport entre la France et la Russie. On pourrait résumer ses convictions en disant qu'elles sont gaullistes, mais immédiatement je vois les ricanements, non pas ici naturellement, mais à l'extérieur, arriver en disant que tout ça c'est du passé et que le monde a changé. C'est vrai que le monde a changé, que la situation est différente aujourd'hui de celle que nous avons connue. Mais il y a une chose qui a pas changé et qui au fond était le, la base du, de la vision qui était celle du général de Gaulle en politique étrangère, c'est la géographie. Nous sommes sur le même continent que la Russie et une immense partie de la Russie est européenne. Euh, On peut aimer, pas aimer, combattre, être en désaccord, et il y a bien des raisons d'être en désaccord avec le régime russe et pas seulement avec celui-là mais avec tous ceux que la Russie a connus depuis bien longtemps, ça n'efface pas cette constatation que la proximité de la Russie et de notre pays et de l'Europe oblige à trouver un mode de relation avec la Russie qui permette d'assurer la paix et la sécurité. Voilà, c'est, vous, l'avez, vous l'avez très bien dit, tout le monde trouve ça normal parce que ça vient de nos amis américains et donc ça fait partie des choses qui sont... c'est dans la nature des choses et ça n'a suscité que deux ou trois jours de commentaires. Et je pense que personne n'a pris de mesure pour sécuriser les communications téléphoniques des membres du gouvernement par exemple. Le président Sarkozy et moi-même, nous n'avons jamais utilisé autre chose que nos téléphones portables. Euh, on nous a donné un moment des téléphones cryptés qui étaient tellement compliqués à utiliser qu'on ne les a jamais utilisés. J'avais un moment euh, souhaité qu'on interdise la, les téléphones dans certaines enceintes, notamment au Conseil des ministres, mais je n'avais pas réussi à, à convaincre. Et donc même au Conseil des ministres, il y, a des téléphones, enfin, il y avait des téléphones portables et donc ça veut dire que n'importe qui pouvait écouter n'importe quoi.
1: So he's saying, like them or loathe them, the Russians are, are near neighbors, very, even, even closer to the Germans and even closer still to the Poles. He didn't add that detail, but he, he suggests it later. Uh, and therefore, if you want to uh, set up a big noise and a talking point about foreign interference so as to tar the French right uh, as uh, Russian collaborators, uh, how ludicrous is that when I said every time that the French cabinet met, the Conseil des ministres, could we please, ladies and gentlemen, leave our phones outside because the Americans are listening to every word? In the second clip, of course, Fion is right-wing and oppositionist, but he's also um, a euro integrationist. Fion said that he envisaged there was a sound economic argument for making the euro a world currency. He concedes that the Chinese will now take that off the dollar in another part of this hearing on the 2nd of May. But he says... um, for a moment, just concentrating here on what happened when he did a tour of European finance ministers a decade ago, uh, he says they were all amenable to his idea of really hardening the euro into a global reserve currency, a sink currency, until he went to Wolfgang Schäuble in Berlin who said, my dear friend, it makes eminent sense, but it's never going to happen. So that clip will follow.
4: And we avait built a project.
1: Et j'ai fait le
4: tour des ministres des, Af... des finances européens. C'était après euh, 2013 ou 14. Euh, j'ai reçu un accueil relativement poli euh, à peu près partout, euh, sauf en Allemagne. Euh, quand j'ai été présenté à Monsieur Schaeuble euh, mon projet de faire de l'euro une monnaie internationale, il m'a dit :« as parfaitement raison, mais on le fera jamais. » Et il m'a dit qu'on ne le fera jamais parce que les Américains assurent notre sécurité, nous défendent. Et au fond, je me suis à ce moment-là dit que je n'avais pas intégré cette, cette, cette dimension dans le... Et quant à l'idée que l'Europe pourrait exercer une vraie pression sur les États-Unis, et ça, avec des rétorsions, euh, elle est absolument illusoire, puisque l'Allemagne ne l'acceptera jamais, la Pologne ne l'acceptera jamais, etc. Enfin, en tout cas, à
2: horizon visible. Ces pratique alors que la législation américaine était assez claire depuis les années 70. Il
4: y, a, il, y a, il y a une immense hypocrisie américaine parce que les entreprises américaines se livrent exactement aux mêmes pratiques. C'est ça le sujet. C'est pour ça que je ne dis pas qu'il ne faut pas lutter contre la corruption. Je dis que ce n'est pas aux américains d'imposer leurs règles en matière de corruption aux entreprises européennes.
1: And that was the second key moment where he uh, had a go at massive American hypocrisy, which he called it in terms, because uh, American extraterritoriality of law, including corporate law, is his, uh, is his bugbear here. He says U.S. companies are, are infringing in the same ways that French or German conglomerates are. Uh, but if it's a French or German conglomerate, with the help of NSA spying, a case will be built and these companies will be prosecuted under US law. So who is the interferer here? One more slide on that, just to remind people that on the very first day of the current phase of the war, shall we say, the 24th of February, 2022, uh, it was uh, covered uh, rather waspishly by the French regional press, West France, that Frit Fillon has said that the Russians had a leg to stand on. And so on the very first day, he deplored uh, the Western refusal to understand or to entertain Russian claims on NATO expansion. So he's made himself a very banned person. But he is a former head of government of a very major European country uh, saying that the interference is, uh, is not really Russian, it's, it's American.
0: Okay, thank you, Alex. Now let's uh, move on to health issues. I'm going to start off with uh, Valneva, the uh, vaccine. Manufa- the va- the vaccine. Um, so that uh, was supposed to be, if you remember, uh, manufactured in Scotland, Um, But uh, the contract to manufacture that uh, COVID-19 vaccine was uh, dropped by the British government. Well, it turns out uh, that that didn't mean that we were, at least Britain's, was off the hook uh, with respect to payment. Uh, So Valneva has uh, published or has sent a a, a filing into the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. Uh, This is it, uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Form 20F. This is the annual report pursuant to Section 13 and 15D of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Uh, And so we'll just take a quick quote from this. Uh, It says uh, under the header header vaccine supply agreement with the UK authority, the UK supply agreement required the UK authority to pay a non-refundable advance payment uh, to, to fund certain manufacturing related expenses over the life of the project and as of December, 31st, 2021, Valneva had received an aggregate of £369.7 million uh, under the UK supply agreement. Uh, Valneva uh, received no additional funds from the UK authority uh, in 2022. Um, So just uh, very briefly, Debbie wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, there's still many questions to be asked over the funding of the uh, so-called vaccination program. Uh, for COVID-19, uh, particularly if you think back right to the very beginning, uh, whenever the government was guaranteeing uh, money to, to AstraZeneca, despite the fact that there had been no safety data provided for AstraZeneca, nobody actually knew whether it was going to get any form of approval, or at least publicly, nobody knew that whether it was going to get any uh, form of approval at that time. And we were asking at the time whether uh, there'd been some kind of uh, backdoor deal done to guarantee uh, that approval would be given or whether they were going to pay the money to AstraZeneca, whether approval was given or not. In this case, we seem to be getting the clue that the money was going to be paid anyway, because that certainly seems to have been what happened here. So whether or not the, the so-called vaccine was uh, was produced, uh, Valneva was still getting the money.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, that's, that's what nearly quarter of a billion that the UK has lost. And I think it's worth noting too that Valneva are a, a smaller company. Um, but they, they were repurposed for Livingstone. But what I've heard through the grapevine is that they're actually thinking of repurposing. That factory is very expensive. It's cost a lot of money to set up. And they're talking about repurposing and using it to produce chikungunya virus vaccines and Japanese encephalitis. Both of those involve animals and mosquitoes. So I think there's far more to come on this, but an absolute, I mean, it's obscene, Mike, obscene.
0: Okay, well, let's move on then to, uh, well, women's issues.
3: Oh, ladies, ladies, ladies. So since October last year, we've known that the EMA have said that um, menstrual um, cycles and heavy periods have been associated with the mRNA COVID shots. So we know that. That was back in October 2022. I think you've got got, uh, yeah, that's it. So we know that that's happening. And then I thought, well, I'll go back and look into ladies' health. And even back in two, 2017, a company called Entity, bear in mind this was 2017, were devising a smart tampon a smart tampon now you can see there on the right hand side it says the latest thing to add to the internet of things the smart tampon has science gone too far yes i believe it has this is a sensor within you we've already talked about the geospatial um strategy now we're talking about cameras within us and this was in 2017 if we skip forward to today we can find that Illumina and we know Illumina are the big genomics company. They partnered with Genomics England. They're embedded into the NHS. You can see that they've got um, they've gone into collaboration with a company called NextGen. Um, it's a genomics startups so and they'll be looking at fertility. Um, and it comes, again, you can see that word accelerator. So let's look at uh, NextGen and we are Jane, would you believe? This is who they've um, coupled up with. And I'm sorry, gentlemen that are watching, but I'm afraid menstrual blood is an elegant uterine tissue enriched sample which allows for non-invasive routine longitudinal data collection. So it's not only our poo that's valuable for data, it's our menstrual blood. And I'm extremely concerned because as we skip forward, we can see that the smart tampon has really arrived. And so now could artificial intelligence in a smart tampon detect cervical cancer? This means ladies, you are going to be inserting a tampon with a highly sensitive camera inside it. If it flashes red, then it means you need to get help or seek advice. If it flashes green, It's perfectly fine. My question is, a medical device, which is what a a smart tampon is, is no longer a medical device. These are spies. These are spies within us. So um, I'm sorry to hit that with everybody at lunchtime. But I think it's very important that ladies know what is on the market and do they know what they're putting inside their bodies?
0: Yeah, so uh, certainly surveillance and biosurveillance has been a theme of today's uh, program. Now, let's just uh, very briefly come on to the issue of farming. And here's uh, Therese Coffey, uh, because uh, she has been, uh, a couple of days ago, launching the Nature for Finance event. Um, This is uh, all about bringing together farmers, land managers, investors, uh, and conservation experts to identify new investment opportunities to drive forward actions to mobilize investment in nature recovery while continuing to keep the nation fed is the claim. I'm going to suggest that in fact, keeping the nation fed is the the last thing on the government's uh, uh, minds with respect to farming, at least. And I'll explain what that means in a second. Uh, But just want to remind everybody that of course, we're in a situation at the moment where farmers are not getting any support to grow food at the moment, they're getting support uh, to grow wildflower meadows and other returning the land to nature kind of projects uh, at the moment. there, it's getting to the point where farmers are, are earning less money, if they're earning any money at all, actually growing uh, arable crops, uh, as opposed to taking the government money for growing uh, various types of uh, uh, herbal uh, fallow land uh, production and so on. So I'll also just remind everybody that uh, although um, farming, farm animals are not exempt from pressure from government, uh We'll just have a look very briefly at what the latest and what's going on in Dartmoor Uh, with respect to this, because farm animals, of course, have been roaming the uh, common land in Dartmoor for hundreds of years. Uh, Just remind ourselves of this from March this year. Uh, Nature on Dartmoor, reflections from Wes Smith, Natural England's area manager, on how we can ensure Dartmoor's unique wildlife is uh, preserved for future generations. And the way they want to preserve it is to take the uh, farm animals off uh, the common land in Dartmoor. So uh, Natural England is the government's advisor for the natural environment. um, And uh, they very much want to see uh, that the relationship between farming, nature, and other impacts like climate change are not in balance. uh, And nature is declining in a way that may jeopardize the huge value uh, that Dartmoor brings to local communities and visitors. So they want to see farming gone effectively uh, from that. Uh, Now, we highlighted this a few months ago, uh, and uh, this was a tweet from Dr. Adrian Colston, Uh, talking about uh, comments that uh, the uh, efforts to remove farm farm animals from Dartmoor are the greatest catastrophe for nature and farming in my lifetime, because in fact, uh, there's no way to control, in this case, uh, millennia, which is a grass uh, that grows in Dartmoor, would be out of control uh, without these animals. Um, Now, but the question is, what's this really about? Well, I'm going to suggest, I'm not saying, but I'm going to suggest this is about Uh, the industrialization of food production in this country because we want to take uh, the small farmer away completely. Uh, We're seeing this with uh, the culling of uh, cattle in the food and mouth right through to the modern day with the culling of chickens and other birds uh, as a result of uh, so-called bird flu. But we've got this going on as well, Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Act uh, now an act. Uh, new genetic technologies could help us tackle some of the greatest challenges of our age around food security, climate change, and biodiversity loss. Uh, I believe this is what is actually going on here. We want to see so-called agri-innovation, bringing food production out of the fields and into factories and return the fields, they say, to nature, um, as if uh, uh, farmers haven't been managing nature for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, But Debbie, let's uh, end then with uh, a, a, a range of uh, headlines uh, from around the mainstream press.
3: Yeah, I just thought I wanted to bring your attention to a couple of things that I picked up. Sky were reporting that scientists have created synthetic human embryos using stem cells in major breakthrough. Um, and this is under the guise of miscarriage research. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of miscarriages and a lot of um, spontaneous abortions. Now, this is this is using... Uh, synthetic embryos. This is exactly what it means. We're not using sperm or over here. We're using stem cells. So apparently they don't have hearts and they don't have a brain, but no one knows if a synthetic model, which is what this is called, would develop into a viable embryo if implanted. Very, very dangerous, in my opinion, Frankenstein type experiments. Um, And then skipping on to another headline that I picked up in Politico, in that uh, they're catching up at long last, admitting now that the mRNA uh, injections are causing rare heart inflammation, according to analysis. However, they cite 321 cases. I don't don't think that's rare at all. Um, In the Telegraph on Saturday, I picked up a couple of tiny little stories, but I thought they were significant. Um, Crocodiles may now hold the key to treating fungal infections. This is the whole antimicrobial resistance agenda starting to rear its ugly head. And they're saying that if crocodiles can swim around in murky water, then they must be very special. So it's all to do with proteins. So keep an eye on that. It's not looking good. And also we can see that they're starting to think about jabbing more people against monkeypox now. It's going to be extended into London. So keep an eye out for sexual health, because we've already seen a rise in gonorrhea and syphilis. And now, of course, we're seeing uh, monkeypox, or mpox, as it's called. And then um, check your briefs. I'll be brief on this, pardon the pun. But so toilet roll and your underwear that you pick up from Marks and Spencers will soon come with warnings about cancer. Andrex, apparently, are going to be putting warnings on toilet rolls. Tesco's are going to be putting warnings in their toilets. So we all need to know to stand up to cancer, even when it's not there. Um, I found, it, found that shocking. Uh, and I also found a conference that was held this Monday, just gone, called the PING Conference. Um, the PING Conference, Pink stands for Pharmaceutical Industry Network Group. And I found that they were talking about the MHRA is in transition what can industry do always pricked up my ears when i saw MHRA and dr shirley hopper who's heard of her but apparently she's the deputy director for innovative medicines so i went to look at dr shirley hopper and i found this organisation called antimicrobial chemotherapy whatever that is and it would appear that dr shirley hopper She's only, well, she's not only, she's a GP, but she was then only a medical assessor for the MHRA. So I don't know what makes her an expert in pharmacogenomics. And here we go pharmacogenomics again. And it's interesting that Dr. Shirley Hopper was also involved in the um, Manchester Arena terror attack. She was representing the MHRA. I just popped that up so that you could see her email address in case anybody wanted to contact her with regarding pharmacogenomics. And um, I've got a few more headlines, which I'm hoping to be able to cover in extra.
0: Super. Thank you very much, Debbie. Thank you for that. Uh, We will end there for today. I want to say thank you very much to Debbie and Alex for joining me today. Uh, We will be uh, back in a few minutes if you're a UK column member for some extra. Um, But otherwise, uh, we will see you on Monday at 1 p.m. Don't forget the two interviews that will be out in the 1 1 p.m. slots tomorrow and on Friday. And uh, hopefully we'll see um, as many of you as possible on Saturday uh, outside Hollywood. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.